Super Talk Mississippi Media Production. Toyota of Brookhaven has been voted best new car dealership in Southwest Mississippi four years in a row. Come see the difference. Exit 40 Brookhaven or online at toyotabrookhaven.com. Great service, great savings. At Toyota of Brookhaven, we deliver. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music. On this Hump Day, it is Hump Day, and it is also expected to be the day in which Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida will announce. His candidacy for president of these United States, Rhino. That's what the word is. And the legacy the media is losing their mind. Well, what are they saying? Well, you've got broadcast media like Fox and CNN and MSNBC, and then you've got print media like New York Times, Boston Globe, The Atlantic, and all of them seem to feel slighted because. DeSantis is poised to announce on a space, which is like a audio chat room, yep. on Elon Musk's Twitter. Yep. And they're scheduled to be at the Four Seasons, I believe. So I heard a spokesperson for... Not the, the landscaping, right? Huh? Not the landscaping place, right? Right. Not the landscaping place. No. Negative. <laughs> the uh, hotel resort. <laughs> So I heard the spokesperson for the Make America Great Again PAC. That would be a PAC that, of course, supports former President Donald Trump. Blasting the idea of Santis making the announcement from the Four Seasons. He's surrounded by all of his rich friends, and they're at this ritzy resort. Seriously? So now we got to get that sort of backlash from Republican candidates as well? I thought that was kind of reserved for the Democrats, which is totally upside down anyhow, because it's the Democrats who, for the most part, overwhelmingly are in bed with the rich elite, liberal elite in this country. So they're wasting no time. You know know Trump's got... Just a litany of nicknames and pejoratives already dreamed up besides the desanctimonious and the sales tax, which was the latest. Well, I sure hope they're a little bit better than the ones he's given DeSantis, because I've yet to see one that stuck and really had a lot of zing to it. Yeah, so far, not really working. But uh, that's just Trump's style. That's his nature. Oh, so, yeah. At a minimum, it will be entertaining. Now, polls, latest polls, still show 
that Trump leads DeSantis by a significant margin. However, in head-to-head matchups between Trump and De- uh, Biden, pardon me, and DeSantis and Biden, it shows it's pretty close uh, with respect to each candidate's situation. In the case of DeSantis versus Biden, it's 45 DeSantis to 42. And that's in the public opinion strategies poll taken last week. And in the case of Trump versus Biden, Biden edges out Trump in the same poll, 46-44. Public opinion strategies polled 500 Arizona voters, and they also polled Georgia voters 500 Georgia voters, and that's because those are both considered pivotal swing states, could go either way, went for Trump in 16 and Biden in 2020, officially. So those polls are somewhat telling. Both seem to give the edge to DeSantis in a heads-up race with Biden, and that, I think at the end of the day, will influence voters. Who can beat Biden? Assuming he's the ultimate nominee. And at this point, I think that's a safe assumption, but still time. And things could flip. Things could change. Here in the state of Mississippi, we've got the race for lieutenant governor and the race for governor that are getting lots of attention in particular because those are expected to be I guess the highest profile and the ones where you'll see the most activity, it will be in the primary on the lieutenant governor's race, the Republican primary, the general election, which is likely to feature Governor Tate Reeves being challenged by Democrat contender Brandon Presley. Brandon Presley is doing some serious email dumping because I'm on the email list, and I see those. Have you received any of those, Rhino? You've been watching? I think I've thankfully been able to stay off the list. (laughs) That's fine. I'm on it, and I'm always curious about uh, what folks have to say that generally don't share my philosophical views. And uh, Presley is really... He's being critical of the governor because he just produced a new TV ad that features him at the New Summit School in 2019. And that, of course, the school operated by Nancy New, who's been charged and I believe convicted, right, in the welfare scandal, the TANF scandal, the New Summit School, the name. So Brandon is trying to connect the governor to the whole scandal simply because he happens to be using images in an ad. I think that is a pretty huge stretch, but that seems to be... I mean, that's the way Democrats do business. They stretch everything out of shape and out of proportion and make mountains out of molehills and lie straight to your face. It's incredible that, to me, that Mr. Presley seems to be almost exclusively focused on the governor being corrupt and being involved in the welfare scandal scandal, 
and, and linking him to it without there being any such charges, no legal proceedings of which I'm aware at this point. He says, when I'm governor, I plan on declaring war on corruption in our state government, and it all starts with sanitizing an infected lobbying system. The first plank of our historic ethics plan focused on curbing the influence of lobbyists and giant corporations. The second plank of our bold plan tackles how we make sure that the largest public corruption scandal in state history never happens again. Well, I have a question for all candidates, serious question, and I think it's perhaps more applicable to Democrats. What breeds corruption, in my view, are weak procurement policies. Look no further than our capital city, city of Jackson. And it's my view that the state government should prohibit granting special preferential treatment in procurement, in their purchasing, using state taxpayer, or should say public taxpayer money, when they grant preferential treatment to vendors based on things that don't have anything to do with the products or services they're selling, such as race and gender and sexual orientation and ethnicity, all these physical attributes that really are not akin to the procurement. And that is in practice across the state, and it's uh, particularly high profile in the city of Jackson. The state government, in my view, should enact legislation that prohibits it. That's discriminatory. It just is. We're willing to pay more to a particular vendor on a procurement if they check the boxes of minority participation. How do the taxpayers benefit from that? Is that obtaining the best value for the taxpayers? No. doesn't mean necessarily you have to always award to the low bidder. I understand that. I worked in that world. I get it. But the best value includes weighting these procurements across a, a broad spectrum of criteria, which of course would include financial price. What it should not include is your, your race, your gender, your sexual orientation, your ethnicity, etc. Shouldn't include that. That shouldn't be factored into the scoring algorithm in the use of taxpayer money. Until we fix that system and change that system, I fear the city of Jackson cannot progress and get out of the dumpster fire they're in. We are at a break here on middays. It is hump day, as Rhino has exclaimed. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a Journey record jacket from the 1980s. Gerard Gibbert, Super Talk, Mississippi. 
Welcome back, everyone, to the Element Wealth Studios. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. And speaking of income and growth, we take a look at the markets, the Dow down once again today in the red, down 237 at present. The NASDAQ also in the red, as is the S&P. All three indexes are upside down today. And that is because investors are worried about the old debt ceiling. We don't seem to be making a lot of progress on that. We shared yesterday during the show when Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy emerged from the Oval Office, having had a bit of a discussion with the President, and came out and said, eh, not really there yet. So investors are worried about this, as they should be. I still think we'll get something done. What that looks like, I don't know at this point. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is, uh, shall we say, yelling from the rooftop. Says, Wait, she's actually paying attention to money now? <laughs> exactly. And not CRT and DEI and all the other social justice initiatives. Right. She said today the U.S. government could run out of cash to pay its bills by early June putting the country on a collision course for a potentially catastrophic default. That's not actually true there, Madam Secretary. You got enough cash to pay the bills. You might have to put some other things on hold, but in terms of the debt obligations, it's not as if we don't got any money coming in. That's the farce in that position statement. It's not true. Be accurate. Be truthful. She can't. Because they, they always look for the maximum sizzle on this stuff, don't they? To Just to get you all fired up. And it's, it's just not true. You got enough money to... And, and the, there's all kinds of other ways the Treasury can work around this. Now, it's not permanently sustainable, but it doesn't mean, okay, June 1, we simply can't make our debt obligation payments. We can't service our debt. That's not true. So they got to get something done. They say they're working on it. It really comes down to spending to a great extent, and Democrats now say, we want to raise taxes in exchange for some of these spending cuts. And let's be clear, they're cuts to future spending. We're not cutting baseline spending, future spending. And reining in government spending is not something the Democrats have any interest in participating in. They hadn't met a dime they couldn't spend. Or in this case, they don't even have the dimes. They just sign up to spend it, and we just lap it on the debt. 31 trillion and counting. McCarthy says we are putting anything on the floor that doesn't spend less than we spent this year, meaning 
It's a non-starter. We've got to at least show that there's a willingness to start pairing back spending. And that's just doesn't get any traction. The Democrats say the GOP demand to cut spending is unreasonable. We've got to spend all $6.3 trillion. Not a dime can be cut. Yet, six in ten Americans, which of course means Democrats are included in that statistic, say, yeah, we ought to cut spending as part of a debt deal. Six in ten, recent poll. Six in ten. So, that ought to tell them something, that you have got support even from your constituents who see this debt clock spinning out of control, they know it ain't good. Um, and they're not necessarily in favor of raising taxes as a way to rein in the deficit, which doesn't guarantee that occurs anyhow. That's the fallacy in that argument. They said, oh, if we just raise taxes... That will produce more revenue. Not necessarily. And <laughs> doesn't typically work out that way. But that's far too complicated a math to expect a Democrat to be able to do. Well, then they don't need to be serving in office. Ding, 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 <laughs> ding. Vote them all out because they're all worthless liars and louses. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries noted freezing spending was a position many in his party, quote, might even be uncomfortable with freezing it. They're uncomfortable with it. We got to spend more. He said the House Republicans rejected that idea, quote, because they want to impose draconian cuts. You can't cut that $800 billion of student loan relief. That's draconian to expect people to pay back the debts which they are obligated to retire. You can't do that. You can't cut that COVID spending, even though there's no more COVID emergency. You can't cut the 87,000 IRS agents. And the biggest sticking point, you simply cannot call on people to work in exchange for Medicaid and SNAP benefits. That's Heaven just unreal. you got to go to work. Incredible. Or not even go to work. At least be actively trying to find it. Like, act like you care a right. little bit? Man. Well, that's the big hang-up. They have uh, they've criticized Republicans on all fronts, and the GOP also rejected the White House's proposal to allow Medicare to negotiate the price of even more drugs, and it's not what it appears. That that's also described a little inaccurately. It's really the government saying this there's is no what, negotiation yeah, there. Right, exactly. It's it's take not. it or leave it. Yeah. Exactly. Which, in fairness, that is the Democrat idea of negotiation. My way or the highway. Yep. So just think about this. They're objecting to simply freezing spending at last year's levels plus 1%. That's unreasonable. People that are enrolled in Medicaid, receiving Medicaid and, and SNAP food stamps benefits... Just requiring them to work, at least as you said, be seeking employment, that's considered draconian. Draconian. 
because it gets in the way of the free ride and the gimme gimmies and the lazies. Unbelievable. So, your old buddy, <laughs> your old buddy, Bunny Sanders. Give me all your money. <laughs> he has, of course, weighed in on the argument. I know you're shocked about that. And he comes forward. Let's see if I can find it here. What Bernie Sanders has to say. He he's against all this stuff, right? He doesn't want any of this. Well, if it's not a communist Russia utopia, he doesn't want it. He pretty much. That's why he honeymooned in Russia. He says that Biden must resist Republican debt ceiling demands. Here's what he proposes instead. He, he said he just blasts everybody that's achieved anything. He said, should we eliminate the corporate minimum tax passed last year that presents, prevents giant, profitable corporations from paying nothing in federal income taxes after making billions in profits? Or should we allow folks to buy affordable health care and get subsidies for gasoline, he says, and groceries in huge loopholes in our rigged tax code? Or do we continue to allow the pharmaceutical industry to bankrupt Medicare and cancer patients by charging outrageously high prices at the pharmacy counter? At a time when the United States spends more on the military, $877 billion, than the next ten nations combined, do we finally begin to eliminate the enormous waste, fraud, and cost overruns that exist at the Department of Defense? I'm on board with him on that. I concur with him on that. On the other hand, it's a little disingenuous the way he presents that, because unfortunately, these other nations, we got their backs, and you know that, and Trump tried to point that out. I give that to Trump. He tried to point out, we're giving these people safety on our dime. He's right about that. And that's been going on for decades, by the way, virtually since World War II. The animals bumping us out here, coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians, Gerard Gibbert, Middays with Gerard, Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well Studios. We thank you so much for joining us today on the program today at 11.05. Danielle Morgan, Executive Director of the Mississippi Tourism Association, will get an update from the MTA and talk about uh, the big Memorial Day weekend, which is approaching. We're expecting big travel numbers for the weekend, according to AAA. And then at 12.05, Tim Moore, President and CEO of the Mississippi Hospital Association, will get an update from the MHA. On the ceasefire text line, Dave says, some of those provisions are mandated by the federal government, talking about procurement 
and the requirements for minority participation. If it's federal money you're spending, that doesn't mean I agree with it because you're absolutely correct. It should not happen. Yeah, it's that's true. There are uh, lots of policies at the federal level, procurement policies that do require, do give preferential treatment to minorities, to minority vendors, and there's a whole definition of that published by the government. Uh, but at the municipal level, most of that's not. A lot of that procurement does not involve federal money, and it does not carry with it those stipulations as a result. So I believe passing legislation prohibiting favorable treatment, preferential treatment, with the exception of federal-mandated procurement situations, is a prudent thing to do. would be good policy. I'd like to see our legislature take that up. I'd also like to see... The legislature eliminate the exemption for competitive bidding when certain personal services are procured by public sector entities in the state of Mississippi. This breeds cronyism, favoritism, preferential treatment, doesn't seek the best value for the taxpayers. And those services could and should be procured on that basis. Engineering, accounting, legal, insurance, other sorts of professional services. Don't ever see politicians talk about that. I've brought it up before. I've been bringing it up for 25 years, actually. Just doesn't seem to get a lot of attention. I don't see why there's an objection to that. Why would you object to competitive bidding? for taxpayer money. Private sector, you're on your own. Do whatever you want. I'm all for that. But in the public sector, when public money is being spent, there should be some reasonable, structured procurement policies implemented that are adhered to by all public sector entities in the state. Hopefully we can get some of that going. Ben from Madison says, 100% agree. Procurement processes are often the center for corruption. I've heard some wild stories about municipalities and counties wasting taxpayer money because somebody somewhere is usually getting a kickback down the line. And, and those, you're right, Ben, are their stories. You know, when those situations are empirically determined, usually in audits, that there is change, there is action taken, but you're right. In general, if you've ever been to any, say, county supervisor meetings or municipal meetings in, involving a mayor and board, city council, the governing body, and if you witness how some of those procurements contracts are awarded, those that involve personal services are typically done without the benefit of competitive bidding. And I've heard a lot of people say, well, that's just not possible. You couldn't do that when you're procuring, let's say, legal services or accounting services or insurance services. I say horse hockey. You can't. Not only can you, I'm very proud of the fact that we 
as a board adopted such policies at the Mississippi Lottery Corporation, even though we don't have to. We still did it. There are some provisions in the Act with respect to major procurements and competitive bidding, but we adopted some rules based on the range of the value, the cost of their procurement, that's from bidding, just simple bidding, all the way up to comprehensive RFPs. And, and we uh, followed that, those policies and applied those, those rules, those regulations that we adopted as a board in the procurement of our legal services, our accounting services, our insurance services, even our bank. We actually did an RFP to select a bank which is a bit unusual. So the idea that it's, you can't be done simply doesn't fly. It not only can, it was. It works. And I think that I'd like to see that model we adopted perhaps be considered as a template across the state. It certainly could be subject to input and impro- approval, uh, pardon me, improvement, improvement, but uh, we got to start somewhere, and I, I just think it's a good idea. It's good policy. Bowen Indianola says, "Come on, Gerard. If they cut spending, it cuts their quick their kickbacks and donations. Wouldn't be happening. Talk about the federal debt ceiling. It really is surreal if you think about it. No, we simply cannot cut a dime of that six point three trillion dollar. We can't possibly go back to what we were spending just last year. Right. It's impossible. It's just unbelievable. Rhino, your music has me reminiscing about WZZQ. Where's Perez? Somewhere around here. (laughs) Oh, man. Bebop Record Shop. Dang, I'm old. Phillip in Walthall County texts in on the ceasefire text line. I got to share something related to that. So, Bebop, uh, most people around central Mississippi, and even on the coast and in Starkville, right? Because they had uh, stores. I know they did in those locations as well. And they were also uh, produced concerts in addition to being a retail record store. Back when that's where you had to buy music, you didn't have the ability to download it digitally. I mean, I was a young man, but I'm fairly certain there was a Bebop in Tupelo, too. Might have been. Well, over on varsity. I, I think that does sound right. I, I believe I got the year right. My company had been open about a year, 1987, maybe it was 88. And our, my office wasn't far from their Ridgeland location here. And um, one of my account managers got went to calling on them, got connected with them. And so we implemented a system in all the stores. And this was this was pretty revelational back then. It's nothing today, but the software was called Record Track, and it was made by the a company that made software for running bookstores called Book Track. And you're familiar with the I think it's ISBN number. That's the, oh yeah the barcode on the back. They of the still books. use those. Yeah, still use it. So you get the ISBN number for your textbook in college. You don't have to go pay an arm and a leg and a toe at the bookstore. You can find it online. It's it's uh, standard. Or at least that's the way it was. Right. The International Standard Book Numbers, I recall, is what it stands for. Well, there's a similar system for record media, recorded media. 
uh, music. Same deal. So what this this particular company had was a giant database at, in their systems that maintained all that information. And you downloaded that. Didn't have the internet back then. This was dial-up overnight. You know, the modems dial-up. And it would download all the new titles, which were released daily, into your local system. You couldn't do it in the cloud. There was no such thing. And so what? when you then bought, the retailer bought records, tapes, etc., from the distributors, all that information was already in your database. Otherwise, you'd have to have somebody full-time just making ads, changes, and deletes, you can imagine, in your inventory master files. So it did all that automatically. That was the main benefit. And it used, okay, in the barcode days, you, all those had the barcode of the, of the record, um, the title, somewhere on the casing, right? Either the little jewel case for a CD or the big jacket for an album. And we didn't have sophisticated barcode readers back then. It was wands. And you'd have to swipe them, you know, across. You have to do it two or three times oh, yeah. And they had little um, Epson receipt printers and cash drawers. All that was pretty high-tech stuff. It was 1987. And so we had the, the fortune, uh, fortunate privilege of implementing that across all the bebops. It was awesome. It helped them out tremendously. Customers loved it, and, the, and their staff did. It was pretty cool. But i got to tell a funny story about one of the stores that called with a problem one day that uh, I responded to. It was the, it was the store over at the uh, Metro Center Mall in Southwest Jackson. It's pretty cool. We're coming right back in the Element Well sto- uh, studio. Stay with us. Days with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. Scotch, one beer. <laughs> Are we promoting alcohol consumption here on the program or what? Well, sometimes you just had a, a rough week. I got you. <laughs> so, the system had been implemented a few weeks, and this was a Unix-based system, which means you had a, a central uh, Unix server and dumb terminals connected to it. It wasn't a network. That really was not even available at the time. And it, the maker of those terminals was a company called WISE, W-Y-S-E. That's what they pretty much did. And all these terminals had, uh, much like your PCs and your laptops do today, they had a timeout feature you could set where if you there was no activity for a certain period of time, it would turn the screen off so it wouldn't burn it in. And Right. Um, CRT tubes. Cathode ray tubes, not critical race theory, by the way. And so we had that set up and got a call from one of the workers at the counter. That was before the days of the flying toasters screensavers. Correct. The flying toasters, very popular screensavers. 
because they move, they wouldn't burn your your um, your tubes in there. So got a call and didn't really think about it when I was on the phone with them and said, "Yeah, my terminal's down here, man. I, I can't use it." And and I rushed out to the store, Southwest Jackson, and and realized, "Oh my gosh, it's the screensaver." I didn't think about that on the phone. Drove all the way out there to help them out. Just hit the space bar. Boom! It came back. And he said, "Wow." It's like Lassie. It always comes home. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, I guess so. That works. Pretty cool, though. Um, digressing a little bit. Reminiscing. So you were just telling me a couple of things on the break. Uh, first is the professor that we discussed a couple of days ago who uh, essentially accosted some students at Manhattan University in New York, uh, pardon me, Hunter University in Manhattan, that had a a pro-life display with some literature and other materials. She just decided to get in that person's face, a couple of people actually, and pushed all the materials off the table, really acted like a tool, and uh, used many expletives in the tirade uh, again, targeting the two individuals that were just so honestly controlled and composed and humble about it, said, yeah, we're just here, you know, with our message. Well, so what happened? Somebody goes to her office, right? Yeah, the New York Post went to, uh, I believe, her apartment and was seeking comment on the now viral video of her accosting these students. Yeah. And she comes out the door with a machete and holds it to his neck, <laughs> threatens that she's going to chop him up. And then there was another video of her chasing him down the street with the machete. Oh, so we've since learned she has been terminated. Yes. She no longer has a job. There is a God. That's justice right there. So, But this is scary, isn't it? That this person's teaching impressionable college students art. Who the heck wants to take art? from somebody with such a temper and an attitude. Because you know it's not just this. No. You, I showed you the photos yesterday. The Post had some photos. You could just look at that person and tell they're just an unhappy person. Oh, yeah, there's other videos that have come out now on social media of her activism inside and out of New York City. Oh, my god, She's a real piece of work. Well, again, I say, how in the world do these people get in a position where they're teaching, again, students. Share another story with us that you were just telling me about. I've seen a little bit. The river in Copiah County, the Pearl River, is eroding a hill that supports a grave. And there's I've seen some floats. It's a photos. graveyard. It's graveyard. an old I'm, cemetery I'm located between Georgetown and Rockport in Copiah County along the Pearl River. And due to the nature of a river, the lines along the river have moved and shifted, and there's an erosion, and now there are pictures that have been shared on social media, and it's, be- it's become a bit of a conversation where at least one casket is visible on the banks of the Pearl River due to erosion. And there, it appears there have been several headstones that have been lost to erosion. Uh, it doesn't seem like the cemetery has been well kept, but surely there's somebody that should be doing something. That photo, like from the perspective of being in the river, looking up at the side of the hill, showing a casket clearly 
hanging off the, the ledge, it looks like there. That's kind of eerie, isn't it? Kind of yeah. spooky. I mean, it looks like it won't be long you'll have caskets floating down the river. Kind of what it seems. Well, the first hour is in, is in the books here on Middays in the Element Well Studios. We're taking a break. It's top of the hour. That means it's time for Fox News and Super Talk News. And when we return, it's Danielle Morgan, Executive Director of the Mississippi Tourism Association. Please stay with us. That keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays, live from the Element Wealth Studios. We welcome now to the program Danielle Morgan, Executive Director of the Mississippi Tourism Association. Danielle Morgan, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So we got the big Memorial Day weekend uh, coming up on us, and that typically draws people out on the roads. They'll be traveling and touring around, and that means folks are probably uh, in Mississippi or, or going into other states, but a whole lot of people from out of state are coming to visit the great state of Mississippi. What are you thinking? That's right. We hope so. We, uh, we love a long weekend here in the state. Uh, we're seeing that, you know, travel demand is really high. It's at near level highs at uh, 91% of Americans say they plan to travel wow. in the next six months. That's, uh, that is, it's been, it's been holding tight at that since about April too. So that uh, fares really well for Mississippi and we are looking forward to a busy weekend. A lot of events going on around the state, honoring veterans and also um, you know, leisure activities too. So we're looking for a great weekend. So it doesn't appear from uh, from that report that the uh, inflated pri- price of the elevated, I should say, price of gas and fuel and other other travel means seems to be deterring Americans from getting out. It is not deterring them, but it is changing what they're planning. Um, you know, they might be driving rather than flying as a way to save money, So, mm. um, which fares well for Mississippi. As you know, we're a, we're a drive-in state. Um, our touch states are some of our biggest markets, and so um, that's that's a good thing because we can provide great experiences at a great value. So, What do they come to see in Mississippi? 
Well, you know, I think one of the unique things you and I talk about often is how diverse our state is. Um, if you want to go hear some gritty blues, you can head to the Delta. If you want uh, the beach, of course, all the great coastal communities, uh, gaming. Gaming's a huge draw for us. And we've seen a tremendous growth in uh, outdoor recreation. You know, during COVID, people really started discovering outdoor assets more than they ever had. And we're still seeing that coming in really strong. Yeah. Well, uh, what are you hearing from the casinos, the various uh, hoteliers, accommodations? What are they saying that they expect this weekend? Are they all ready for a big, busy weekend? They are. You know, this is kind of the official kickoff of summer. So uh, spring has been strong, and so I think everybody's geared up for um, a big a big weekend. Of course, we still have some staffing challenges in hospitality, so um, we do ask that you be patient. Those folks are working hard to give you a great experience, um, sometimes working two jobs. So, What's the economic impact typically on a Memorial Day extended weekend? Do you guys track that? Do we know about that? You know, we, we really don't. It's, it's a hard thing to track with all the multipliers and um, different areas. You know, a lot of individual communities um, do track spending and they kind of have specific numbers for that market. But statewide, it's difficult. You know, we, we really track annually, mostly by fiscal year. Um, but, but we can look at those monthly tax receipts for the special tourism taxes, and that gives us a good indication of how strong it will be. But that's about two months after before we get those numbers. What uh, is the Mississippi Tour Tourism Association doing to promote Mississippi presently, Danielle? What's the message? Well, you know, um, a lot of what we're doing is supporting our members throughout the state. We have members in every sector of tourism. And, um, of course, we have a huge marketing um, from the ARPA funds, the federal funds, that will be rolling out any minute um, in several communities across the state. And so we expect that to uh, provide a big boom as well. Right. Are we? Do we advertise and promote the state outside of the state to try to encourage people and attract people to come to Mississippi? Absolutely. Um, Visit Mississippi does um, most of the promotion, and the majority is done out of state. Um, and so we're we're seeing great results from what they're doing there. Um, great numbers. You know, uh, as you and I have talked about during COVID, Mississippi was one of the strongest. Um, in tourism recovery, and we have seen some of the strongest visitor spending in our history during that time. So we're hoping to get back there. Um, we like being in the lead. We like being one, and so we're going to work hard to try and uh, regain that position. Right. Um, are you seeing kind of a wave of an increase in travel uh, across the country? People, I think, still maybe a bit of cabin fever from being locked up during the, the COVID lockdown era. Just in talking to your, your peers in the other states, is they also expecting big uh, travel weekend in summer? Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, um, we're very positive about the outlook. You know, we um, here in Mississippi, our visitor spending last year um, actually was a little above 2019 pre-pandemic, and so we're expecting to even exceed that this year. But that's that's really strong coming out of such a tough time for our industry. So, 
um, the, we're very positive and we're looking forward to um, providing great experiences. What's on the horizon uh, for the Mississippi Tourism Association? You guys got uh, any projects underway you're working on right now? Well, you know, we are always working to grow and prosper tourism in Mississippi. It is Mississippi's fourth largest industry, hmm. but we're always um, looking to grow that. We feel like tourism is a really um, important economic driver for Mississippi. Also, really important to our economic development initiatives, too, because tourism provides um, a great experience for visitors, but also a great quality of life for our residents. And so that's something we're always working on is how we can develop our communities to attract and retain talent and um, make sure all of our residents have a great quality of life. Sure. Who, who are your members exactly, Danielle, in the association? So we have members um, across all sectors. We have, uh, of course, uh, destination marketing organizations or CVBs in individual communities. We have um, hoteliers. We have members from the casino industry, um, and then kind of media partners that are involved as well that get to know our members and work with them on media and say, we, we really run the gamut across the industry, and we're always looking to grow that. Um, we have some cities who may not have official tourism entities, but they're a part of the association as they're trying to cultivate. Sure. We know tourism is a way to grow uh, to grow the economy in these communities, and so they're everybody's looking to cultivate their industry. And so we're we're happy to support them and also provide, um, you know, advocacy for the industry. And then we do a lot of educational events too to kind of um, make sure that we're developing our tourism professionals in the state. Would there be any reason for an out-of-state entity to be a member of the Mississippi Tourism Association? Uh, possibly. You know, anybody that really has an interest in uh, tourism in Mississippi um, is certainly, um, you know, it's really, there's a lot of ancillary industries. Like if you look at, um, you know, distributors, food distributors sure. and um, beverage distributors and those type of things, they rely on the success of the tourism industry. And even uh, if you look at, you know, power companies and things of that nature, they provide tremendous, um, yeah. a tremendous impact for the different entities there as well. So um, it's a wide reach and we're we're growing and um, we're excited to be able to support the industry that um, that's working really hard for Mississippi. You know, one thing I guess I didn't ask, although we touched a bit on uh, just the, the price of travel and fuel in particular, is could we expect, should we expect any sort of constraints, shortages of fuel or, or constraints on hotel room accommodation availability? Because it seems like they're still looking to get fully staffed and at least return to the staffing levels pre-COVID. Is that a problem? You know, workforce, I think, is still a problem across uh, all sectors at this time. Um, you know, we are um, working on solutions for that. I think we're starting to see some improvement. Um, but, you know, uh, we hope we hope there's a shortage of hotel rooms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a good problem. Yeah, sure. But uh, but as far as fuel, I haven't I haven't heard anything along those lines. Um, food, fuel prices have come down a bit. Yeah. Um, so that'll that'll help get people moving. But uh, we're certainly we're certainly positive. We know, as you mentioned, even though inflation's hitting people, uh, they still want to get out there and yeah. uh, see friends and family and have great experiences because we, as we know, life is short. So. Yeah, you got certainly got to refuel, re-energize, reconnect. Just kind of clear the mind a bit, 
of um, all the grind from daily work, daily life, and get away, and then you're sort of refueled and back at it. Come to Mississippi, no doubt about That's it. That's right. Appreciate That's it, right. Danielle. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, and I'm sure we'll, we'll check in with you again and, and see how everything's going as the uh, vacation season progresses. Thanks a lot. Thanks. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios, folks. Stay with us. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Bumping us out or end this segment, excuse me, here on Middays. Great tune there. Don't forget Tim Moore at 12.05, President and CEO of the Mississippi Hospital Association. So, Sam from Mount Hermon sent a link. Interesting. Body of Benedictine Sisters foundress thought to be incorrupt. National Catholic Register. It's an article from the National Catholic Register. So incorruptible saints supposedly, or, or in accordance with Catholic doctrine, give witness to the truth of the resurrection of the body and the life that is to come. That's interesting. I uh, appreciate you sending that on. Pilgrims have descended on a Benedictine monastery for religious sisters in rural Missouri in recent days. Amid the news that spread on social media last week that recently exhumed remains of an African-American foundress appeared to be incorrupt four years after her death and burial in a simple wooden coffin. That's fascinating. Hmm. Known for, no, it says known for her devotion to the traditional Latin Mass and her faithfulness to Benedictine contemplation and the liturgy of the hour. She died at age 95 on May 29, uh, 29, 2019. That's really fascinating. Appreciate you that on. Seems like she would have gotten a promotion from that far-left indoctrination center of a college on the ceasefire text line referring to the professor at Hunter College in Manhattan that Went rather postal, shall we say, on a couple of students that were hosting a pro-life event. Ransacked a table they were staffing there that had literature and materials related to their pro-life beliefs. Got into the student's face and was uh, quite disrespectful, using expletives and profanity 
in condemning and denouncing, castigating the youngsters there, the college students. And then the New York Post sought her out for an interview, and she put a machete to their, and it chased them down, right? Threatening, by the way. She has been terminated. Hmm. An art teacher. What kind of art do you teach when you have that sort of personality? I'm sure she was peachy in the classroom, right? You think they really, she really taught art, or did she rather push her radical left-wing worldview on the students? What do you think? I mean, probably both, but yeah, it definitely had to have had a tinge of her worldview. She no seems doubt. like the kind of person that can't separate politics from her actual adult life. <laughs> Unbelievable. On the ceasefire text line, last time the executive director was on with you, you asked him why are so many hospitals leaving the MHA, and he told you he had no idea. Actually, that wasn't me. That was Paul Gallo. Tim has not been on with me since news broke a couple of weeks ago. Of uh, First, it started with UMC, and then some other uh, hospitals, pardon me, have followed suit and also terminated their relationship with the Mississippi Hospital Association. So we'll ask Tim about that and see what he can share on that. So just to clarify, Tim has not been on this program since all that occurred. And um, we asked him to, to come on. Our content director did today, already having been on with Mr. Gallo since this uh, became a story. Sam says she taught paper mache, <laughs> a play on the machete, of course. According to Fox yesterday, she wasn't terminated. She's just no longer teaching at Hunter College. She will be moved to another educational system in New York. Well, well it's not like she had tenure. She was an adjunct. Yeah, right. We'll see. Well, we shall see. And, you know, honestly, some of that, when you sort of reassign somebody, it's for legal purposes. You're trying to navigate the waters, and usually that's maybe what counsel would recommend. And that's kind of what we got. We'll see where that goes. What was the medicine that people used to blame on irrational behavior? Some sort Ambien. Of pill. Yeah. Thompson Greenwood. The Ambien sleepwalkers. Yeah. I do remember that. Debt ceiling debate seems to be a stalemate, says Jack in Jacktown. Feels like we're working on gun legislation. Yes, so far, it is at a stalemate. Nothing's going through. The Trump campaign, by the way, <laughs> getting ready for the DeSantis. DeSantis is what, that's, a, that's today's nickname, by the way. Trump posted, you may be able to find it on social media, it came across the screen here in the studio. I'm not a, a uh, I don't have an account on Truth Social. That's where he posted it. But so the nickname of the day is DeSanctus. So it's DeSanctimonious, the sales tax, now it's DeSanctus. <laughs> but I think he might have better luck if he starts working on the name Ron. 
DeSantis feels like it's going to be a tough one to get a zinger out of. But yeah. There's a lot of stuff you could do with Ron. That's true. So Trump's aides today have already gone to the media to mock DeSantis for, quote, out-of-touch campaign launch plans. This is what I was sharing earlier. I think this is coming from, yeah, it is. No doubt. This is it. This is Caroline Levitt. I didn't catch her name when I was listening to the live interview who is uh, a spokesperson for the Make America Great Again PAC. This is what Miss Levitt said. Quote, this is one of the most out-of-touch campaign launches in modern history. The only thing less relatable than a niche campaign launch on Twitter is DeSantis' after-party at the uber-elite Four Seasons Resort in Miami. Seriously? Every day, more and more Americans are realizing just how out-of-step Ron DeSantis is with their values and how unelectable he really is, Miss Levitt added. Huh. Amateur hour at the Gator Farm, said Stephen Chung, another Trump campaign spokesperson, that after sharing a screenshot of the announcement of DeSantis' presidential plans, which incorrectly, he said, listed the date for the event as March 24th instead of May 24th. Amateur hour at the Gator Farm. <laughs> wow. This is going to be fun. I got a feeling we'll have plenty of uh, fodder to, uh, to talk about here on the program when this campaign really ratchets up. Carl Rove predicts that the polls will tighten. I do, too. So right now, I just saw a graphic that showed in the Republican primary, Trump at 58 percent, DeSantis at 16. And then next was Ramaswamy single digits, and then the others followed behind. We'll see. Scheduled to enter the race tomorrow. Someone asked again, Rhino, um, you do such a great job of explaining the issue with a person's Second Amendment rights to possess a firearm and medical cannabis. That comes up, and somebody on our ceasefire text line Right, uh, was it Darren and Jackson? I think it was. Yeah, that said, I'm, I'm, yeah, could you explain again why I wouldn't be at risk of losing my 2A rights if I had a medical marijuana card? You did a little research on that. Oh, on yeah. The break. Tell us about that. Yeah, so if you look at the, the, the Form 4473 that you got to fill out when you get your background checked to purchase a firearm, there have been 28.5 million of those filled out. Out of those, 478 were referred for investigation. Less than 300 were prosecuted. So that little box you have to check that says you're not a habitual user, that's now under scrutiny from federal judges because there are now two cases in the federal court system that say banning someone from owning a firearm for marijuana use is unconstitutional. So not only do you have a very low risk of it actually being enforced, it appears that it's on the docket to make it all the way to the Supreme Court to be decided that it's unconstitutional. 
So that really seems to be a fairly low, if not negligible, virtually. If you need medical risk. marijuana, don't let that be the, the thing that gets. Okay, is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. We were talking about the elections heating up here in uh, Mississippi. And Stacey Abrams, you know who she is. She is uh, was a candidate for governor in the great state of Georgia. You could say is a high-profile political figure in the Democrat Party. Which is amazing, because she's yet to win. <laughs> exactly. And she, uh, many credit her with the get out the vote effort in the 2020 elections where Donald Trump lost to Joe Biden in a state that typically goes Republican. Also, Herschel Walker was defeated for the U.S. Senate. However, Brian Kemp won handily the governor's seat re-election in the peach state of Georgia, but Stacey Abrams is starting to poke her nose in Mississippi politics a bit. We got some sound for you. Which southern state do you think is ripest for the for the sort of transformation uh, you helped accomplish in Georgia? And second, tell us about the novel. Thank you. Well, I think that we have an exciting set of elections coming up in Mississippi with Brandon Presley running against a very weakened Tate Reeves. I think that Andy Bashir is going to put on a very credible race against Daniel Cameron. He has been a strong governor, and that is a real opportunity. And because these are off-year elections, I think it's an important, it's very important that we pay attention to these two southern states that we invest heavily in their success. Hmm. Weakened Tate Reeves. He's weakened? How's that? You may not agree with the governor across the board, but weakened? I'd submit it's just the opposite. I think I honestly think that his stock's gone up since he's been in office. And I don't mind saying I'm hosting an event for him at my house week from tomorrow, June 1st. A fundraiser. And, of course, I'm sure the left will go crazy and say, oh, I only did that to get a lottery board appointment. I think I'm on track to make $160 this year from that <laughs> appointment. <laughs> Unbelievable. You know, I don't contribute to political campaigns or promote candidates for anything other than just make good policy to make our state and nation better. That's all I care about. That may sound almost cliche-ish to people, but it's the truth. I'm not looking for anything in return. I don't need anything except good policy so that we can preserve and reignite the principles that made this country 
the most prosperous, the freest, the greatest that man has ever devised. Period. It's the truth. But I'm sure they don't see it that way. So come on down, Miss Abrams. Come on down. And it's, it's time to start talking about those policies that make our state more prosperous, grow our economy, make us freer, safer, healthier. That's what's needed. While we're discussing this, our capital city just seems like it's going down daily. We talked yesterday about the Cracker Barrel. 30 years, right down the street, shutting down. We can't do it anymore. So my hat's off, too, and God bless all the merchants and businesses, restaurants, shops that stay in the capital city, that deal with it. And I've said before, and I believe it, that it's on all of our best interests to have a thriving, safe capital city. And I do think HB 1020, expanding the Capital Complex Improvement District, is a step in that direction. Well, they can't have it both ways. They can't cry racism when the state doesn't want to help, and then cry racism when the state does want to help. Exactly. Because it's a grievance industry. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a scam. It's a shakedown. No matter what. Never happy. And Never you, enough. And you know why? It's because typically what you're asking for is horse hockey. That's, that's why it's never enough. Because, well, that's really nothing. Well, right, we knew that to start with. You try to make it into something. For political gain. For power. Notoriety. Incredible. So, Miss Abrams, I think, is, is wrong here. Malcolm from Tishabingo County says, should have been arrested. Who's he talking about there? The oh, professor. The professor. Yeah, I agree with you, Malcolm. But you it's know, New York. It's not going to happen. Right. So what if a conservative professor acted, behaved the exact same way on a pro-choice student event? My gosh, they'd fill the airwaves up with it. Still be on it. There'd be a list as long as your arm of death threats. You know it would be. You know the so-called tolerant and passive progressive leftists. You get in their way. They, they become some of those most militant, angry, asinine pieces of human filth on the planet. In the case of the good professor, they grab their machete and run you down. A reporter! Doing their job. Incredible. Tim and McGee says, I like Trump, but why does he keep this up? Dividing our own party. I hear you, Tim, and I, I, I can't tell you the number of people that I run into that, that share your sentiment. I share your sentiment. I, I have said on this program that his America first stance, I'm all in. His economic policies, I'm all in. Other good things he did as well, the Abraham Accords, telling the Paris climate deal, take a hike. I'm all in. Exposing China and the EU, who get the benefit 
of our $877 billion annual defense spending. They don't spend squat, but they know we ain't going to let the bad guys take them over because it would affect us. And they abuse that, and I think Trump pointed that out. I'm all into that. But there's certainly concerns about his personality. There's no doubt. I've, I've just heard countless people say that. And um, we'll see if now, if once DeSantis, so you wonder how the polls shift. So you got these polls that show him way ahead of DeSantis, but when DeSantis is official and you start seeing people throw their, um, their support behind him and money. By the way, he comes in with $110 million bucks. He's got $110 million. Now, we just talked about um, Tim Scott announcing who shows up with more money than any other candidate the day he announced, that being $22 million. Here comes DeSantis with $110 million. And donors lining up now, it is being reported, to support him. But right now, it looks like it's Trump's race to lose. I, I agree with that. And if he's the nominee, I'm voting for him. No doubt. Um, certainly, if you're considering the alternative. I don't see any good alternatives on the Democrat side, period. And this debt ceiling deal cements that view even more. Well, there's just not a dime we can cut. Good grief. If you can't win the three or four states that are purple, you can't win the presidency. Yeah, we agree with that. Um, on the ceasefire text line, gosh, we've talked about that ad nauseum, is that presidential politics, the presidential election, the way the electoral vote works, really comes down to about five states, and within those states, it's a handful of counties. And if you research and see kind of what those look like, 16, and then in 20, it was kind of shifted in the other direction in about the same amount. And it's because of those swing voters, that's why they call them that, the uh, political scientists and the pollsters refer to those as pivotal counties. I found that out <laughs> this weekend doing some research. I always heard the term swing, uh, purple, as this listener says. All that absolutely is, is true, and in, in I think our common language we use, but I found the pollsters call those pivotal counties, and that makes sense as well. And it's just a few. It's a few in a few states, about five. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona, Georgia. Used to be Ohio and Florida. Prior to that, it was always Ohio, Florida, Ohio, Florida. And now that's kind of seems to be pretty solid red now, you would have to say, when you look at how they voted in recent elections. So that's shift around somewhat. When we come back, if uh, Rhino would, I'm going to ask him to play the sound from Joe Biden we played a couple of days ago at the G7 summit. It's, uh, it's eye-opening, and then we're going to analyze what the president says there. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show. On Super Talk Mississippi. So don't stop me now. Don't 
Well, studios, I'm going to save the Biden clip for a little later. We got uh, so many texts coming in, I wanted to get to Donald in Oxford says, if Trump would keep his mouth shut, I could support him. Personally, I know people who were mad at Tate about the flag deal. That could be one way he is weakened. That's what Brandon Presley said about the governor. We as conservatives bet, better get over this silly stuff like that and come together, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't feel like that uh, candidate Brandon Presley believes that the governor is weakened, their term, because of the, the flag situation. I don't, I don't feel like that's what he's pointing to um, in his description of the governor. Mike Mark from Gulfport, pardon me, says, good luck finding a, a conservative professor. Yeah, it is disturbing. What's the research you did the other day, Rhino? You were talking about the commencement address speakers, like 100% are left-leaning at some big pool of colleges. Yeah, they, the any sort of moderate to right-leaning um, subjects don't seem to get asked to speak at college commencement exercises, do they? Nope. Hmm. Gary from Tishomingo, Stacy needs to pick some cotton like I did growing up. She probably doesn't believe you did, Gary. That's what's out of touch about it. If Trump gets the nomination, says Mose, I'll vote for him, but I would prefer a different person. Presley's on record saying he wants the old flag back? No, I don't think so. I don't think he said that, Mose. I was just referring to a comment by another person whose perspective is, on our text line, perspective is that the governor has been weak. And I think it is true. There's some people that are sore at the governor for for that. And not just the governor, but members of the legislature, speaker, lieutenant governor, et cetera. I sure hope that doesn't become the the issue upon which people rely to cast their vote, honestly. Um, uh, something that isn't being talked about is how Biden won't be able to run his campaign from the basement, says Ben from Madison, like he did in 20. If he sounds tired now, just wait until fall of next year after a full year of campaigning. The Democrats are actually talking about that, Ben. I've seen some reports in the Washington Post. The Washington Post. A mouthpiece for Biden and the Democrat Party. They're expressing concern. And what they're saying is there's lots of chatter that doesn't really get exposed as well. They're also, I believe the DNC has said no debates, right? Yep. And that's totally to protect the president. Because RFK Jr. would walk the dog oh, with Biden yeah, on no the debate doubt, stage. No doubt about it. Republicans must focus on winning, says Philip in Walthall County. Not one person or personality. Trump might just have to put aside his ego and go for the bigger goal of winning. He also says, I think too many people would vote for anyone just to vote against Trump. I think he was and would be a great president, but I also think he's too toxic to be reelected. 
And, Philip, it's my belief that in 2020 that's precisely what happened, that independents that supported him in those pivotal counties because they couldn't envision a President Hillary Clinton, honestly, I think turned on him in 20. I do, however, believe if they had seen the Biden we got today, you're shaking your head. You think this as well? If if what we thought was, oh, it's moderate, just sleepy Joe, good old Grandpa Joe, no, not going to do any harm. But what we saw and what we have witnessed in the three years, starting on day one, is that he's far-left radical. He's been pulled in that di- direction since day one. And I think if those independents in those pivotal counties had seen that company coming and known that's the way he was going to govern, they would have, in fact, cast their ballot for Trump. Or if the administration hadn't strong-armed the FBI and DOJ and other intelligence agencies into signing a letter saying the Hunter Biden laptop was agree. Russian disinformation. What I totally agree with you, and posted that on my social media, by the way. Either of those two, both is a sure thing Biden goes down. Either of those two happens in 2020, I think we have a different outcome. I totally agree. If, the, if you'd have told the so-called swing voters in the pivotal counties in those few states, this is what Biden's going to look like describing how he has, in fact, behaved as president. They'd say, no, I'm not for that. I really do believe that. Even though their disdain and contempt for Trump grew after Trump was elected, I think they still offer Trump. We'd have a different outcome today. It's time for a break here on a middays, top of the hour. It's noon. That means Fox News and Super Talk News. When we come back, Tim Moore, president and CEO of the Mississippi Hospital Association. to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Well Studios, it's middays on this. Pump day. Joining us now, Tim Moore, President CEO of the Mississippi Hospital Association. Tim, good to have you on the program today, sir. Thank you, sir. Good to be here. So the Mississippi Hospital Association has been in the news quite a bit, uh, shall we say, the last uh, couple of weeks. And I think uh, it all started when UMC had uh, sent a letter to the Hospital Association informing of their... Um, decision to terminate their relationship, their yep. membership right. with MHA. The first question is, was that unexpected, or did that come rather abruptly as a surprise? Yeah. Well, first, let me let me mention the 
the publicity, you know. I don't know that I really agree with Trump on all publicity. As long as they're talking about you, it's good. <laughs> right. Let's get that out there first. I don't know that necessarily that's where we are. Gotcha. But But we certainly have had it. Yeah. Uh, no. Uh, yes. Uh, I'll have to say all the, the letters that we've received have been somewhat um, unexpected. Okay. In the fact that the association has continued um, along the strategic the strategic plan that we have been going down for years. And, and that is to advocate on behalf of hospitals, patients, and those that serve those patients across the state. Um, the, the decision, of course, that, that appears to be the elephant in the room is a campaign contribution uh, that was made uh, that um, is not undifferent other than the amount undifferent from campaign contributions we've made throughout the past in supporting candidates that supported hospitals. Okay. Predominantly, those candidates that supported Medicaid expansion. Okay, that's been the path that we've gone down, and I'm I'm still I'm really confused. Uh, and you know, maybe some of the folks can ask their local hospitals that have gotten out of the association, why did you do that? Are you not for Medicaid expansion anymore? I don't know. I I have had conversations with some of, them, and I will say some of the organizations have voiced um, financial expenses and budget issues within their organizations that they're looking at everything and certainly with all this going on it gives you a good excuse to to go ahead and cut that one now i'm not saying that's what it was i'm just saying i've heard that too i've heard all kind of things Uh, i do know that the hospital association is going to continue to focus on candidates that support health care we've done it we've done it in the past we did it with a ballot initiative uh, several years ago and was moving forward with getting expansion there and that that kind of got clipped um, we'll continue to do that because somebody has got to be advocating for our hospitals and for the patients that need those services. So uh, it, it, the question I think that comes to mind is, Tim, is these hospitals that have exited the association, if it's in – I'd say it's your opinion. Is that fair to say? Sure. That they did so because of the contribution Correct. the PAC made uh, to Brandon Presley, who's made it clear – as governor, he would support Medicaid expansion. Absolutely. So, circling back to my question, do these institutions not support Medicaid expansion? Not they, they have always supported it to me. Okay, and to our association. What about your board? One voice. That the board was part of this. I mean, you know, you, you and I serve on boards, sure. and we're part of boards, and sure. uh, boards make recommendations. And, and, you know, we need to keep this straight, too. The PAC is a separate entity uh, right. uh, from the Hospital Association. Thank However, you for pointing that out, because I'm yeah. on similar boards. Same deal. We, same have, we have the governance board, and we have a PAC. There you go. Yeah. So, But you know the funds are raised through the members and, sure. and, and events and things that you have happen there. So you certainly want to stay in line with what that membership wants you to do as a PAC. Sure. Because that's going to affect your contributions going forward. If you support the candidates they want you to support, they continue to contribute to the PAC. Well, that's what we do. We go back to the membership and say, hey, look, this is what we're recommending, or this is um, this is a suggestion, or this is a thought, however you want to do it. That's what we'll do. And uh, there was, uh, was support for where okay. we were going all the way through. So does your board, is there a single board, or is there a separate board for the PAC? There is a there is a an advisory committee okay. for the PAC. Okay. And then uh, of course, comprised of board members. It is. There are okay. some board members on there. Yes. And so was it? Can you share? Was it their decision to make this contribution? It was the, uh, you know, the decision is kind of left up to a recommendation 
that, you know, yes, this is what we want to do. We want somebody that's going to support Medicaid expansion. We okay. have not seen that in the past under current leadership. There's That just has not been. It's, it's, as a matter of fact, it's far away from that. Okay. And you don't see that changing over the next four years. You've got a situation with Medicaid expansion, <clears throat> and that that may be what keeps some of the hospitals open. You know, we're down to 10 now. There's only 10 states that have not expanded. Right. Alabama will be the next one. Yep. They're continuing They're to move forward with it. It's uh, From all indications I'm getting from there, that's going to happen. Uh, so we are yet the poorest state. We're the sickest state, but we're not taking advances in moving forward with providing coverage to our low-wage earners. Now, even with the polls across the state, I mean, we're, we're and you can pick whichever poll, but 75 to 80 percent of voters across the state of Mississippi are supporting some type of Medicaid expansion. I have been in conversations lately where light bulbs have come on, and individuals have said to me, said, wait, 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 you, you mean you're not talking about increasing the benefits of current Medicaid patients? No, that's not what we're talking about. It has nothing to do with that. And then, of course, we've gone forward then to think about the CHIP program. Think about what we do for kids, healthy kids, that parents cannot afford coverage. Well, these are the, the working individuals in our state that just don't generate enough income to be able to pay, to pay expensive insurance premiums. So Same thing. If, I could, if I could clarify, um, just for the benefit of our audience, because you know it's brutally complicated. Absolutely. And uh, so the CHIP program uh, and those children in Medicaid, many of which – have parents that are not on Medicaid. That is correct. So it's the children which represent uh, about 400,000 plus or so of the total 750 plus or so. I mean, it, round yeah. numbers here are close, okay. right? I mean, they're the, maybe a little high, but it, it's okay. going to be a significant Well, even, na- even nationally, yeah. oh, absolutely. it's, it's yes. roughly 45, yes. 50 percent yes. of yes. children. I would, I would agree with that. And in states that haven't expanded Medicaid, um, which is, is simply adds a coverage group, which would be able-bodied adults right. whose income meets the income eligibility thresholds. Those children live in households where the children are covered, but the parents aren't. I can tell you as a foster parent, you know how the system works. I had two foster kids. Right. I tried like hell to get them on my private insurance. You right. can't. That's exactly right. I'm willing to pay here. Yes. I don't want taxpayer help. It doesn't work help. that way. It doesn't work that way. And the reason is, honestly, is it's rooted in, in I think, sensible logic, which is foster children, at any point in time, the foster parents can say, come get them. I'm done. Right. That's it's consistency sticky. in health care. It's sticky if they're on your private insurance, right. and now you've turned it back over to the system, right. as it's called. So right. I get it, but I, tr- I tried. I went down to Human Services, and, and th- which were a client of mine, said, is there any way we can put a waiver on this or something? I don't want them to be on yeah. Medicaid. I'll put them on I'll my insurance. Yeah. But you can't do it. No, that's right. And that's federal, by the way. That's, that's exactly not right. a state thing. That's, that's right. a federal thing. You have guidelines that are set by the federal government on, on all this. Because they're paying. That's right. The majority they're of They're paying it. the majority of it. Yeah. Just Which as is the they way would, it works. Just as they would with the expansion group. So I, I guess then the, the question um, is, so just getting through what Medicaid is about a little bit, and it's way more, more complicated than that. But sure. I just want to to clarify for our audience, the CHIP program that you talked about, no, Children's great. Health Insurance Programs, what that stands for. And it makes it a lot easier to really understand what we're talking about are two very similar things. That's right. 
That's right. I get it. But so do you speculate then, uh, if you care to, to share with the audience, uh, that the reason, the rationale for these members exiting was because you made a significant contribution, the PAC did, to candidate Brandon Presley. Do you really believe that yeah. um, personally is the reason? Well, that, that's the only thing that has okay. happened. So they never um, expressed any concerns before that. Hey, we're we're thinking about exiting this association here because no. we're not happy with no. this list, that, and the other. No, you know we had gotten to the point that we had ninety nine percent of the hospitals in the state of Mississippi were in the association, and you had a strong unified voice to advocate for those things that are common for all of those facilities. Yeah, and and certainly uh, I, I hope we're able to regain that at some point. Yeah, because if you're going to represent an industry, the like minds need to be joined. Sure. And That's the purpose voice. of an association. It's the whole purpose of it. It's yeah. the whole purpose. So the fragmentation uh, is certainly a, a concern. Okay. Uh, it's uh, it's not going to uh, it's not going to slow us down from the standpoint the support of the members that are there and continue to support the, the, the message and the strategy that we are that we're going to support Medicaid expansion and we're going to move forward with trying to make that happen. we got a break here. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to think about it and we'll catch it on the other side of the break. Is Are you expecting more? Have you got any information about that? We'll catch that with Tim Moore, the President and CEO of the Mississippi Hospital Association when we return on Middays in the Element Wealth Studios. Keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well Studios. Tim Moore, President and CEO of the Mississippi Hospital Association, is our guest. So before we went to break, I asked you if you expected uh, any more to uh, tender their resignation from the association. Yeah. Um, I do not at this point in time. Okay. I, I've had no indication that anyone else is, is looking at it. Um, certainly, I could be surprised this afternoon. Sure. You know, that's uh, uh, kind of the situation I've been in the last couple of weeks. But uh, no, no one has made any indication that, uh, matter of fact, the calls uh, of support and hang in there and you're doing the right thing. I, it, I've been shocked at the phone calls I've gotten from people I didn't even know that have called and said, thank you all for standing up. And, and trying to do the right thing. Hmm. So, you know, you appreciate that. Of course, I've gotten some that didn't like it, too. So, um, yeah. you know, let's, let's keep it balanced here. But, you know, you, you got to you got to appreciate folks that are seeing it. We are trying to do the right thing. And it, this is strictly a policy issue. It's nothing else but a policy issue. We, we support 
Democrats and Republicans. Matter of fact, if you go back and look at our record the last cycle, about 70%, 70-72% of the PAC contributions went to Republicans. Hmm. Okay. And that, now I do know one of the articles published that uh, we were a member of the AHA, and AHA sent 85% of their money to the Democrats. Well, that's not what we do here. Hmm. Okay. So well, that's the, not a, the AMA, a I think you could probably put in that camp as well. The, uh, in the American Medical Association. Yeah. And heck, every doctor I talk to says they're not a member. They, yeah. They've all well, the AHA. This is American Hospital Association, right? I know, yeah. but I'm talking yeah. about the AMA. Well, the yeah, 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 yeah. So, and of course, you look at look at the difference in power. I mean, you know, right, you're going right. you're going to weigh heavily toward whoever's in power, whether right. it's Republican or Democrat. But again, we have focused on everything we've done has been supported by support for health care policy, good health care policy. All right. So then, given that is uh, kind of your mission. Mm-hmm. Then, from a legislative and policy perspective, would you rank Medicaid expansion at the top of that list, the top priority oh, for absolutely. the Mississippi Hospital Association? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, we've, we've listened to our members constantly, and I mean all of our members, constantly on the, the one thing that we can do that will have the greatest impact is Medicaid expansion. Okay. And that's what's driven that approach all along. And, and I don't think that's changed for anybody, even the folks that have gotten out of the, excuse me, out of the association, okay. uh, because they still have the same financial struggles they had prior to that. So I've heard uh, to that end, I've, I've certainly talked to the lieutenant governor, uh, Delbert Hoseman, mm-hmm. on the program, who I think is um, kind of framed by conservatives in the state as sure. uh, someone who seems to support Medicaid expansion and therefore he's not conservative. When I've talked to him last time right here in the studio, this was maybe back right after the session, he said he kind of offered tacit support for it, but he also did make the, the follow-up statement that I don't think this would solve the, the financial challenges that hospitals in the state of Mississippi are experiencing. Do, do you believe that as well? You know, I believe that it is a, uh, it's a huge piece of solving that problem. Okay. There has got to be reoccurring revenue for our hospitals in order to meet the expenses that they currently have. Now, will that fix all of it? No, sir. I'm not going to sit here and say that. Okay. But if it does not happen, it's going to continue to get worse and worse. We have a huge, and I think you and I have talked about this some, but um, we've got a huge revenue deficit in our state for health care. Right. Our expenses have gone up 19, 20% since COVID. The inflationary index Hospitals across the country had a historically bad financial year in 2022, mm-hmm. worst in history. Mississippi is no exception to that. It, it, it's actually worse than most of the country. And it goes back to our sick patients and, and the poverty level that we have in the state. So it's not only Medicaid or, or Medicare rates that have to be addressed. We have got to address the commercial payers in the state of Mississippi. When you compare those to other states around us, we are substantially less. I have looked at that, and you're absolutely right about that. That and is the truth. Hospitals and providers, and this is not just hospitals. It's doctors. It's nurse practitioners. It's, it's the other people providing, providing care for patients that have got to be reimbursed to a point that they at least cover their expenses. No business model works unless you can recoup your expenses. So, Tim, to those who say, well, the problem with uh, generating a positive cash flow for hospitals is that their admin expenses are outsized, they're too high, that they need to trim those admin. I hear that a lot, just to let you know on the streets. What what would you say to that? You know, I would say that um, uh, there is... There is probably some truth to that Okay. in the standpoint that due to federal regulations that things have had to be put in place that have now created 
from a employment standpoint, more than 50% of your staff are non-patient care staff. Wow. That's a problem. And it's because of the regulatory Absolutely. environment? It's because of regulations. It's because of the difficulty getting payments. Uh, it's difficulty in, in systems used by payers. And I don't mean just commercial payers. Sure. It's the same thing with Medicaid or Medicare. Uh, Medicare. Yeah. And then we've got some payers that, that do a really good job processing the claims. But they may not be paying you enough to cover the cost that it costs to generate it. They may be denying the claim and deny it two or three times. Well, it costs you every time you have to refile that claim. And that's not providing patient care. Yeah, and you've also got the issue, I've personally experienced this, to get uh, prior approval. For certain, for, for certain, that takes a lot of time because you get rejected a couple of times. And then you got to get the doctor involved in that. Absolutely, right. Well, you know, we had a couple of bills uh, that were actually vetoed by the governor that actually took care of some of that. The gold card for the for yeah. the providers, yeah. uh, and then also uh, any willing provider bill yeah. was in there. So, yep. and I just I, I don't know understand that. I mean, it overwhelmingly passed both the Senate and the House, and it would have been a really great bill for our hospitals and our our docs. It would have been great for our doctors out there as well. Well, we got one carrier, Blue Cross, that covers what eighty eighty five percent strong uh, of the private market, more, yeah, of the commercial players. Yeah, but Tim, that exists in our neighboring states of Louisiana and Alabama. Right. I think it's even higher, the Blue Crosses in those states. It is in Alabama. It is in Alabama. It's yeah. like 95% in Alabama. Oh, and like, well, you know, that's actually who would be running the Medicaid program uh, in Alabama. That's I didn't the, know that's that. That's the model that they're oh, looking at. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's 80 to 90% in Louisiana as well, as I recall. It's a, it's a pretty strong yeah, it's, number. Yeah, it's, it's a high number. They, they, look, they have a strong... Uh, but why do they reimburse more? Why, why did the, why did they seem? Why do the hospitals and providers seem to have more leverage with those Blue Cross organizations in those respective states than we do here? Well, you've got some of it is is um, from the support of the state. If the if the state supports paying appropriately, then okay. they, they get pushed into that point. Okay, uh, and certainly we've seen that. If you go back and you look, um, you know we uh, we were looking at a state plan amendment. Medicaid went through the process to try to generate, um, and it, boy, we really get complicated if we get into this. But it's the MHAP payment, yeah, which actually covers the gap between what Medicaid pays and what Medicare would pay. Right. Well, that that changed a little bit in the past when we brought MCOs on, uh, but. Uh, Louisiana was successful in changing the gap from Medicaid to average commercial rate. Okay? Right, it went right. From Medicaid. So that brought in $900 million hmm. to Louisiana. Okay. Okay, so that that's a key right there. That's one. We tried to do it in Mississippi. Medicaid went to work on it. They worked hard with Milliman. They come back uh, with one number, which really didn't turn out to be the right number, but they kept working on it and found out there is no gap between what Medicaid pays and our average commercial rate across our hospitals. So you couldn't do... Uh, a big increase on inpatient. Yeah. So that that I mean that's evidence right there. Our commercial rates are a problem. It's not Medicaid is overpaying I, I our totally providers. Agree. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. I get, and I I got to tell you, I I've got uh, contacts that are high levels in yeah, these hospitals. Yeah. Um, and they they share the same thing. Yeah. They've shared exactly what you've said. They and and they point to our neighboring states as hey if we were at that level our problems go away. That's exactly right. If we were at exactly Louisiana right. or Alabama level, our hospitals would be underwater oh, financially. I think that's exactly right. We definitely would not be in the shape we're in. Yeah, because we're the wrong. lowest cost. We're the lowest cost in the country. Right. Right. Lowest. Well, right, exactly. I know that scares people. You got people that's going to laugh about I know. that. I just got my it's, bill. That was lowest cheap. cost and lowest revenue reimbursement. That's right. And I'm hearing more providers, Tim, say that 
that uh, Medicare is getting be more difficult to deal with. Oh, that you're having to chase Medicare more, That's exactly right. Almost to the point that now private is getting a little easier to deal with. It depending on the provider That's, and you know right. the services, a, the practitioner. Accurate. Yeah, be very accurate. Because there was a time four or five years ago they'd say I'd rather deal with Medicare all day, right? We'd process the claims, right? Now, now that you've gone to the uh, Medicare Advantage plans, yeah, that's a completely that's, different. That's ballgame. exactly right. Because you've and inserted that private drop. insurance in it. That's is right. what you've done. At so a lot, just at a lot lower this. rate of reimbursement, right? <laughs> and so explain to our audience that the, the reimbursement. So healthcare is unique in that there are multiple prices for everything. It's not like I've explained going that's to the right. McDonald's. There's one price for a Big Mac, but when you're that's getting right. medical services, the frustrating thing to most patients is I can't tell you how much it's going to cost. We got to wait till it's done. That's a problem. And then when you get it, there. There could be four different um, prices depending on who's paying for it. That's exactly right. And, and how much business they do with a particular provider. And, of course, you know, the mm. difference in that hamburger and, and taking care of a patient is we're all different. Oh, completely agree. So there is some, completely agree. some margin in that. If you can but, hang around, we'll talk some more. Okay. we got Tim Moore, President and CEO of the Mississippi Hospital Association, in the Element Well Studio. Super Talk Mississippi. Uh-huh. Well, it's you and me, baby. No one else we could trust. We'll say nothing to no one. No how we bust and never crack a smile or flinch or cry for nobody. We're back with you in the Element Well Studios. Tim Moore is our guest, the president CEO of the Mississippi Hospital Association. So, the Medicaid expansion issue, why do you think most people uh, object to that? Because it's, it's still pretty strongly opposed, although before I, I let you answer that question, Tim, I said yesterday on the program that I believe if we get the ballot initiative the citizen-initiated ballot measure process back into law, that there would probably be an organized effort. I know your organization strongly considered it, to get a measure on the ballot to expand Medicaid, which simply means that Medicaid coverage is offered to able-bodied adults whose income is below 138% of the federal poverty level and above 100%. That's correct. That's all it does. It's estimated that there are 150,000 maybe to 200,000 that would fit into that category yeah. Mississippi we, you know we've used uh, we've used 200,000 okay. as a as a number to look at but it's actually probably a little less than that yeah okay so i believe that it would pass at the yes. ballot box and the reason i say that is because if you kind of boil it down to to political terms for the most part, it's a Democrat. It's a Democrat program. It's passed under uh, Barack Obama. Because prior to that, prior to the Affordable Care Act, Medicaid was not available That's in right. general to able-bodied That's adults. Right. Less than twenty percent of the federal poverty level, or something like that, which would be like three thousand dollars a year. That's correct. So, 
um, before that. So it's, it's safe to say, I think, that the 40% of our, our voters who are Democrats would likely vote almost in unison, 100%, to support it. Mm-hmm. You don't need but 10% more of the voters, That's right. which, which represents, what, 18 20% of the Republicans, to support this. To do it. To get it passed, and you've run into Republicans that support this as well. Oh, right? listen, I, we have had uh, – we've done polls. We've done internal polls. Sure. And, and looked at nothing but GOP voters. And, uh, you know, it's 54 to 60 – 54 to 56 percent of those GOP voters supported Medicaid expansion. Okay. And that's without education. That, that's just asking the call. Asking Understanding the it. Yeah. So yeah. I, can, I'm, and, can I make a suggestion here? I'm please. sorry. Please. Can, no, no. Can, all, can, that's all I was going to say I was is – I'm going to make a suggestion. I've said you, this on the air before. The, let's take Greenwood LaFleur, who's been – I'm not picking on them. They've just been a focal point because they might be in the most dire sure. situation financially of any of the hospitals in your group. And there's no doubt that they're in an area where the population has declined, and it's it's hard to make ends meet when you've got a declining population. You need people, and right. you need people that need your services to generate revenue. No doubt about that. And there's no doubt that they're in – a physical facility that's not optimum for today's healthcare environment, no doubt about that. But they're they're on the cusp of total failure. Why don't we take their financial statement? I've I've looked them up and I've shared it on the air. I've looked at the last five years of their published reports. Why don't we take their financial statements? Let's take last year, Tim, and let's plug in overlay Medicaid expansion. Mm-hmm. using the exact same data mm-hmm. last year, mm-hmm. which would simply mean, okay, all these patients – I don't mean adding new patients. Right. I mean take the same, same patients. Yeah. Same store. Yeah, it's same services that they essentially absorbed because there was no reimbursement, mm-hmm. because the patient didn't have private coverage, but would have been eligible for Medicaid, and therefore the hospital would have been reimbursed X dollars, and plug that into the model, sort of a before and after, and see what happens in their financial I don't think that's statements. a great idea. Uh, and I, uh, we can make that happen. I, the, all I'd be the happy hospital, to share it with you. I, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. And it's and it's yeah. it's not that I'm, I'm doubting the suggestions about uh, how the uh, expansion would increase and improve their revenue, but let's look at that at, a, at an accurate, detailed level, and, and don't plug in all these these uh, pro forma projections of how it right. would change the future. Right. Let's just take last year, yeah. the last three years, two years. Yeah, what would have I like that. I like it. And here's a before and after, and and I just think that would make the case a little stronger on on behalf. And then to those, um, and I'm trying to just moderate here between the two, and the, to those that oppose it. They need to come forward and say, well, these are the, the reasons we oppose it. Not say, well, here are all the problems with the healthcare industry. Well, I get that. We all got problems. And we those, those we are well them. taken. And certainly, it, where there are efficiencies to be gained, the dang hospitals need to be working on that full time. I, right. I totally agree with that. Right. Support that. And so, um, and then on the other hand, though, they need to be something a little bit, I think, more substantial as to why there's opposition. And like I've said before on the program, well then uh, suggest legislation, author legislation, and put it on the floor to take Mississippi out of Medicaid altogether. We'll just tell the federal government, we don't need your $6 billion. Because that's what it is that's, now. That's what it is. $6 billion. And that's our it. part's just under a billion. That's right. Just under, So we're being subsidized by the other states. I absolutely will. And somebody no just said a minute ago, well, I don't think it's right that I, as a taxpayer, Keith and Vaden, should have to pay for somebody else's health care. Keith, 
Um, I hear you, man, and I know that's a tough one, but here's the deal. You pay for everybody's Medicare and your Medicare contributions. You're not yes, paying you for your own. Right. You're paying for people that are getting sick that's today. Exactly. You're paying that in your paycheck every single month. Yeah, no question. That's it. And you hope somebody's coming along behind you that'll pay for yours when you get there. Because the amount you're putting in, Tim, as you know, won't cover the amount it, it you're going to get, not even close. Mm-mm. That's why it's going broke in three years. And they're saying, true. we can't pay Part A in 2028 if we don't do something. And our federal government says, we don't want to touch that. Okay, well, then it's going to fail. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. You can't well, just gonna walk have away to. from it. No, you can't. You can't let it. And, of course, we can't let it fail. We can't let the health care system fail. And we got, we're all going to need it. And we got the same issue here in the state. And I guess what bothers me is there's always a lot of pointing to what won't work. But we have to acknowledge we have a problem at a minimum. That's right. What will work? I'm not in the camp that says Medicaid expansion is the silver bullet that solves this problem whatsoever. I think there are a lot of other things that we could do. And maybe we need to seek waivers as part of that to perhaps incorporate um, putting people in the exchanges in lieu of... Yeah, in which yeah. case there's no state cost associated and, with that. And that's a that's a good uh, a good road to kind of travel down briefly. But uh, you've got to look at the deductibles that come into the exchange products. So even if you're providing somebody coverage through an exchange and there's a ten thousand dollar deductible that they can't afford to even pay premium, so how in the world are they going to make a ten thousand dollar deductible cover? Pay? Yeah. So then you have a situation where we are subsidizing the insurance companies, but the providers are not getting anything for the services they rendered. So there, there's difficult, <laughs> there, there's little traps all through this thing that we have to work through. But I'm with you. I think if we could all sit down and have a logical discussion of not necessarily trying to defeat each other, but find a solution and a compromise that works so that we can get coverage for the folks out there that are trying to work and can't afford it. It, it it's going to help all of us. When you start looking at hospitals that are having to to stop services because of this revenue issue, that doesn't just affect the Medicaid population or the expansion population. Oh yeah. It affects you and I. people too. It, it, it's your commercial folks too. So we all need to be mindful that it's not just a, those folks over there. When you start Twisting the healthcare system, it affects us all. Yeah, and access will become an issue. And I, I had a friend that just texted a member of the legislature that said, you know, the hospitals are still seem to be operating on a 1970s model, and in some cases, and certainly in the rural areas, they are. But how do you just forklift all that? Uh, I mean, they're, and I don't know exactly what that means. And I know there's been lots of reports and analyses written about that. I do think they're physical facilities to a great extent, because that's why so many of them, as you know, are moving to ambulatory care oh. centers, well, which are which are profitable for them. That's right. Well, and they've been pushed that way yes. by, by the payers. Yes. And I would, and I don't know who that was, but I would love to sit down and talk to them and let's go visit the hospital and let's let's compare that. Now, okay. are, are there some things that are 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 tied or or similar? But you know, when I came into healthcare, yeah, seventy-five percent to eighty percent of our patients were inpatient. Right. Okay. That's now flipped. Right. About eighty percent of our patients. Thanks are to outpatient. technology, honestly. It's, it's technology and payers. Payers have okay. pushed us they, there. They don't want you That's, there. They, yeah. They want to go to the cheap, cheaper. Go, go cheaper home road. and take care of yourself. And, and our folks have <laughs> became innovative enough to be able to offer those services. And you know, we've had good outcomes. And I think we'll have to continue to do that. Telehealth, hospitals at home, all the innovations and follow-up that we can do now with electronics uh, in, in most cases. But, you know, think about that. In some of our rural areas, you can't do that yeah. because we don't have the broadband to support it. But we're working on that. Yeah. We're trying to get there. Well, to get I, there. I do think that there, 
maybe some adjustments and improvements and modernization, of course, that could be made. If, in if they've got the resources to do it. That's the problem is they don't have the money there to do go. it. That's it. So it's not they like, we're well, just leaving this building and going to a more modern building where our, we, we could pull our costs down. That's, you know, that's a little got, easier said than done. We've got, it is. We've got a number of hospitals that are still working in 1950s Hilburton Hospital. I didn't know that. That's a challenge. You know, just think about that. Think about yeah. the structure, how it was put together, the heating and cooling, the, yeah. all of the issues that came Ancient. into play there. Yeah, and it and it costs money. And um, it's Pete Sessions. We'll have to talk about it another time. Yeah. at the federal level, has got a bill that would completely revamp the Obamacare exchanges. That makes a lot more sense. Where your insurance is more portable, that's a problem now. That, that as is you a know. problem. Huge problem yeah. that could be fixed. You don't get the tax benefits when you're in individual coverage the way you do an in employer. That's, right. exactly. that's a huge problem that the Fed has to fix. We that's can't right. do anything. We can't about do that, that one. We yeah. can't fix that one. Tim, appreciate you coming in. Thanks, yeah. man. Pleasure yeah. to be here. Thank you. You got it. Tim Moore, President, CEO of the Mississippi Hospital Association, coming right back with the final segment on midday. Stay with us. Yes, I'm leaving here a better man. Ah! It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi. So where are these guys from? Europe. Because their accent is clearly... <laughs> it's, it's clear that they have a sort of a European-type accent when they're speaking English, singing English in the song. They're Swedish. Uh, well, that makes sense. From the uplands. It, honestly, it, uh, their accent sounds like ABBA <laughs> because they're from the same country, right? Yeah, they're, uh, according to Wikipedia, their major breakthrough was uh, in Sweden in 1982 when they won the televised competition Rock SM. <laughs> gotcha. So, um, this is a complicated topic, and I, I just want to clarify, I'm, I'm not stumping for or against Medicaid expansion. I just want, and, and, because I'm tr- keeping an open mind, I just want to solve the problem. To, to just dismiss it and say, oh, it's not a problem. You hospitals just clean your act up. Well, I'm not in that camp. I don't subscribe to that belief either. And if it were just in Mississippi, maybe. A handful, maybe. It's dead gum all of them across the country. Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic, two of the most prestigious health care providers in the world. Both losing big money last year. Big money. And that's not because of Medicaid. It's just cost through the roof. It's demand and supply. Not enough people want to go into that profession. Pay is up. Everything's more expensive. But there's just a limit of how much we will pay for our insurance or for medical care. There's a limit to how much we can pay. I also still... I've always strongly believed that the good news is we keep inventing more care to address all kinds of diseases and illnesses and afflictions 
way more available now than we did five years ago. Orders of magnitude more available than we had, let's say, in the 50s and 60s when people point to that and try to compare 2023 to 1958 in terms of health care and the cost of it. Well, yeah, you just died back then. There wasn't much they could do for you. For a lot of stuff today, we can cure. But it costs money. And that's, that's, the, that's the continuous challenge. How, how do we, when do we start putting the power into somebody's hands that makes the decisions? Well, yeah, you can have that, but it's going to cost you a whole lot of money. And if you can't pay, well, then it's not available to you. It, it, who's going to play God in that respect? I don't want to see that. So how do we address this issue? It's just complicated. And it's not going to be solved with just Medicaid expansion. Because the hospitals in the Medicaid-expanded states, they're losing money, too. And Medicaid expansion is just a fraction, honestly, of the total uh, population. In Mississippi, just like you heard Tim say, the figure I've always seen is 150,000 to 200,000. Those are just able-bodied adults who have an income between $12,000 and $19,000 a year. That's who would be eligible. And by the way, if it's less than $12,000, they are not eligible. They fall into what's called the coverage gap. So under Medicaid, they wouldn't, but under Obamacare, they do. I understand the hospitals need help. I can't speak for everyone else, but my main problem with Medicaid expansion is the continuous problem of our country as a whole growing government. Our country is going broke, and we keep trying to solve problems by spending more of our government's money. There has to be a better way, Bradford Blue Springs. I, I hear you, Bradford, and I agree. Well, then, as the state of Mississippi, are we prepared to tell the federal government, which sends three times more than we send to it? We are literally a welfare state supported and subsidized by the blue states. Without the blue states and the taxpayers in the blue states, Mississippi crashes. I don't like that. I'm not blasting my home state. I love my home state. I live here. I've raised my family here. Work, worship. I want to make it better. I want to work to wean ourselves off the federal largesse. Think about how we elect our dang politicians. You better go up there and send all the money back. I've said that so many times on this program, I'm blue in the face about it. But so do all the other states. All 435 in the House, all 100 in the Senate. That's how we end up with $31 trillion in debt. Because we only elect them. In fact, they brag about it. You need to send me back because I sit on this committee or that committee or this committee and I control the purse strings and I'm sending money back home. Send me back. Money we don't have. I could go on and on and on. It all and on about it, obviously. Oh, man. Problem is inflation over the last 30 years has taxed the American middle class so bad that we almost can't afford to live. Wages need to go up or the dollar needs to buy more, and MRI should cost as much as it does. I mean, yeah, we're so much better off than we were 30 years ago. It's not even funny. So that's just simply not true. There are fewer people now in poverty. In fact, it's virtually been eradicated uh, across the globe when you look at the standard of how poverty is measured. And in fact, in the last 20 years, more people in this country have moved out of the middle class upwards, upwards, than in any other point in time. We're in the studio again tomorrow. Join us then. Until then, stay safe and God bless.
Talk Mississippi Media Production.